1: The girls who snubbed us, the boys who deserted us, the strangers who ignored us, the parents who misunderstood us, the employers who rejected us, the mentors who doubted us, the bullies who beat us, the siblings who mocked us, the friends who abandoned us, the conformists who excluded us, the kisses we were denied because no one saw us. They were all too busy turning their gaze elsewhere while I was directing my gaze at you. Only at you. Because I am one of you. Sorrow has no hierarchy, (laughs) suffering is not a sport, there is no final ranking, tormented by acne and shyness, by stretch marks and discomfort, by boldness and insecurity, by anorexia and bulimia, by obesity and diversity, reviled for the colour of our skin. Our sexual orientation, our empty wallets, our physical impairments, our arguments with our elders, our inconsolable weeping, the abyss of our insignificance, the caverns of our loss, the emptiness inside us, the recurring incurable thought of ending it all, nowhere to rest nowhere to stand, nothing to belong to, nothing, nothing, nothing! Yes, that is how we felt. And just like you, I remember it all. But it no longer matters that the world took issue with us. For now it is us who shall take issue with the world.
2: Happy heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. A moving speech by John Malkovich in the underrated New Pope series. It's actually a very positive speech. And you'll see why when I play the rest of it at the end of this intro. It's a... Succession.
1: Oh, fuck off. Hey, fuck off.
2: The speech is about us, we of the broken places, we sons and daughters of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Like the ancient Gnostics, we were always on the margins of this predatory universe. But guess what? The world's collective psyche collapsed a few years ago and suddenly the outside society matched our inside struggles. Everyone is late to our madness party. We're ahead of the effing game.
3: Human beings are the only animal that forms ideas about their world. We must agree on what is real. Because of this, we are the only animal on earth that
2: goes mad. Western society's materialism has always brought copious levels of depression, suicide, mental illness, and addiction. And it's only gonna get worse by our conic design. The Wetiko Mind Virus is just spreading across our collapsing civilization.
0: It's what the Matrix does weaponizes every idea every dream everything that's important to us
2: but we eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast and we've learned to make the wetiko mind virus work for us as Robin Williams once said you're only given a little spark of madness if you lose that you're nothing don't ever lose that because it keeps you alive
3: You are inside the maze now. You cannot escape. Welcome to madness.
2: So in these last days of human consciousness, we can flourish and help the least of our brothers because we know the depths of hell so well. As Oscar Wilde said, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at stars. At the same time, Jung did write, Mercury is something like the Godhead, but is found in the sewers. And as the Caterpillar told Alice, You are a terribly real thing in a terribly fake world. And that, I believe, is why you are in so much pain.
0: Love
1: isn't going to save us. It's what we have to save. Pain makes us strong enough to do it.
0: All our scars, our anger, our despair, it's
2: armor. Like the Wetiko Mind Virus, our pain is something we've transmuted into inspirational gold. As far as the gutter or the sewer, it was Philip K. Dick who talked about the real divinity being the god in the gutter. It's time for we of the broken places to lead the way out to those that want it in this sinking ship of fools. As Yuan Culeano wrote, the point of Gnostic knowledge was to use it. It was meant to change the world.
0: I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me!
2: In the Cathar myth, Satan and his angelic horde are cast out after their failed Kendall Roy celestial board takeover. During their exile in the void, they run into this thing called matter. Satan decides he'll use this substance to fashion his own heavenly corporation. During the process, Lucifer is unable to animate Adam and Eve the first of his slaves. He comes up with the politician idea of double-crossing some of his angels and places their essence inside humanity. In other words, Gnosis makes us all fallen angels.
0: I was pressed down like coal. I suffered. That's what an angel is,
3: dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world.
2: You crushed me. After all, in the Cathar myth, fucking over some of these angels results in their redemption and blowback at the end of time. Thus, awakening is the greatest rebellion against the heavenly order of this dimension. And even Irenaeus said that the Gnostics were worse than Satan, because at least the devil doesn't talk smack about God and his creation. All of this is the best news you could ever have.
1: When you know nothing matters, the universe is yours. And I've never met a universe that was into it. The universe is basically an animal. It grazes on the ordinary. It creates infinite idiots just to eat them. You know, smart people get a chance to climb on top, take reality for a ride, but it'll never stop trying to throw you, and eventually it will. There's no other way off.
2: And even more good news is the revelation that we must eradicate the mind killer that is fear, that our lives stretch far beyond our egos, and that death is an illusion. As Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, with Gnosis you will never taste death. On a dark, ironic side note, Iwan Kuliano was discussing this very saying the day he was assassinated by Romanian Secret Service at the University of Chicago.
1: A oh, fuck off.
2: But back to my musings if we forget all these revelations, Will be nothing but meat sacks in a world of sellout scientists and cuck politicians and fork tongue media leaders. This is it, and I'm glad you're here with me, Miguel Connor, your pompous of gnosis, to never forget and keep remembering here at AM Bite.
0: Do what you want, take what you want. Gods
2: make rules they don't follow them to keep our third eye on the ball we have the aonic honor of interviewing tim wyatt on his new book everyone's book of the dead the work is a thoughtful and well-researched treatise on preparing for death reincarnation karma ndes astral flights, and all the other essential woo-woo you'll need to fly and embrace Sophia when she calls back her children for that last final war against her demented son. As German writer Jean Paul Richter quoted by Tim says when we die we shall find that we have not lost our dreams but that we have only lost our sleep. There are far worse things waiting man than death. Get ready for an intriguing and useful interview with Tim. So necessary as Samael and his kelepot continue to ramp up their psychic wars against us. Desperate and unoriginal, fumbling for tired propaganda and outdated shibboleths. Many meat sacks are still buying all of this for that safety in numbers fallacy. It was Robert Heinlein who wrote, Man is not a rational animal, he is a rationalizing animal.
4: Quietly yearning for what you don't have, while dreading losing what you do. For 99.9% of your race that is the definition of reality, desire and fear baby
2: but we of the broken places are beyond rationalizing because our pain is alchemical inspirational gold as rudolf steiner 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 said wisdom is crystallized pain and as jung wrote the reason for evil in the world is that people are not able to tell their stories guess what you bullies and abusers, and fucking social potentates. We can now write our own gospel and live our own myth as the world collapses and this becomes the playground of Hermes.
4: Billions of people just living out their lives oblivious.
2: Stop denying your potential and start realizing you are a god in the becoming. Even if you're stargazing in the sewers with mercury. As the saying goes, an artist is not a special type of person. But every person is a special type of artist. And that goes too for an entrepreneur, inventor, parent, or whatever your higher self has prepared for you jung also said that free will is doing exactly and joyfully what we are meant to be doing right now and you're so close and you'll be free and you'll be truly alive fuck off i'm with you in 2022 with cooler content than ever and so many risks because as the cliche goes Everything you want is on the other side of fear. And fear is just wanting to control life, which we were never meant to control, but experience and go with its flow. You as you know yourself are not the final term of your being. Let us look at more stars from the gutter with our interview with Tim. And here is the second part of John Malkovich's speech from the new pope.
1: It no longer matters that the world took issue with us. For now it is us who shall take issue with the world. We will no longer tolerate being named as the problem. Because, in point of fact, they are the problem, we are the solution. We, who have been betrayed and abandoned, rejected and misunderstood, put aside and diminished, there is no place for you here. They told us with their silence. Then where is our place? We implored them with our silence. We never received that reply. But now we know. Yes. We know our place. Our place is here. We are all miserable wretches whom God brought together to form a glorious church. Yes. We are all miserable wretches. Yes. We are all the same, and yes, we are the forgotten ones, but no longer. From this day forth, we shall no longer be forgotten. I assure you, they will remember us.
2: This is the A.M. Byatt interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Tim Wyatt to discuss his book, Everyone's Book of the Dead. Tim, thank you very much for coming on the show.
4: Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me on, Miguel.
2: Pleasure's all ours. I really enjoyed your book, and you've hit on a lot of themes that I have been discussing uh, this year, very important things as we try to move forward as a society and a culture instead of stagnating as we've been, especially recently. But with us, too, we also have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing?
3: I'm okay. And uh, looking forward to this interview, because it took a couple of stabs at the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it's kind of tough to get through.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: here I am, everyone.
2: Yeah, Tim <laughs> definitely uh, covers the Bardos in his work, and a lot of ground. Again, a lot of wonderful ground. So Tim, before we really delve into your book, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, have you always been into the esoteric realms or what was your evolution in life
4: no it's something that's interested me since i was a teenager and i started to read a few books at that time and i've had a a passing interest and sometimes an abiding interest throughout my life but i worked for most of my life as a, a journalist and i was very very busy and so for some years my studies into all this and my investigations were really put on hold but about 15 years ago I really got into things again big time and started to do a lot more research and reading and everything so it's been with me all my life I've always had a belief in reincarnation ever since I was a child even though my parents and the local priest and my teachers and everybody else said no this is completely nonsense but intuitively I always had this feeling that this wasn't the first time that I'd been here and it wouldn't be the last.
2: Yes, I would certainly agree with that. So, uh, why don't you tell us why you decide to write this book? And, uh, let me quote you because your book has uh, a lot of wonderful quotes from yourself. Uh, the book has excellent visual sections with quotes and thinkers. It's your book is a nice adventure into these topics from various points and, uh, the the research is sound It's scientific it's got everything and it's a good quick read that i it took me very little to uh well i couldn't put it down and it took me on a great journey and uh definitely supported a lot what i what i understand and also helped me understand some things but you write back to quoting you you write the chief purpose of this book is to fundamentally question and possibly change prevailing attitudes to death as the majority of people understand them in Europe and the West. And then there's a quote where you say, death is the triumph of life. So this is why you wrote the book, right?
4: Yes, I wrote it for a number of reasons. Um, The chief one being that I wanted to take the fear out of death, because when you talk to a lot of people here in the UK and in other Western countries, death is always accompanied by fear. And the other reason I wanted to write it was that in the Theosophical Movement, of which I'm a very active member, uh, Madame Blavatsky, the Russian 19th century mystic and founder of the Theosophical Society, said that on, on more than one occasion, the most important of the cosmic and universal laws that we should teach at the moment and explore and investigate are the twin interlocking laws of karma, the law of cause and effect, and reincarnation and how we're all part of a continuous, continuum of life in and out of physical bodies. If people had this view that they had been here before, that they were here now for some particular purpose, on some part of their journey, with some lessons to learn, some karma to discharge, and that they were shaping their next life now by their present life, people's behavior would change at a stroke. However, when you put all this into a historical context, it's only relatively recently that most people in the world haven't believed in reincarnation in some form or another. The early Christian creed incorporated reincarnation. It was abolished mainly for political and control reasons in the sixth century, but many Christians now still believe in reincarnation. I don't just mean going to some giant uh, divine warehouse in heaven (laughs) to wait some kind of resurrection but I mean actively being reborn on this earth and in fact attitudes to reincarnation have shifted remarkably during my lifetime. When I was born in the early 50s reincarnation was unknown outside of esoteric and a few narrow academic circles whereas now up to a third of people in the west believe in rebirth in some form or another and i think this is a tremendous shift it's a paradigm shift and the third reason i wanted to do it was that the egyptians have a book of the dead the tibetans have a book of the dead the mexicans have one so why shouldn't everyone else and what i tried to do was to incorporate as many different angles to do with death if you like the history of uh, funeral rites, how people regard the afterlife, the process of dying itself. This is very important because actual dying, the process of dying is often much more frightening to people than the thought of death itself. And this was another reason why I wanted to try and take the fear out of it. If we have good lives, why shouldn't we have good deaths?
2: Mm, that's really well said, Tim. And yes, agreed. I would, uh, yeah, what did uh, Benjamin Franklin say? The only two constants in life are death and taxes. So, uh, we need to understand death, but sorry, I will always be afraid of taxes no matter what book comes out. But, uh, death is something else because it's, uh, it's an illusion, but where do you see the west going wrong when it comes to the insane fear of death which the last two years have shown us uh what happened to us and i mean obviously some countries like mexico portugal the italians and death still have a good beat on this uh temporal transition but what what do you think went wrong in western europe and america
4: Well, the fundamental problem is that um, our whole reality, our whole paradigm, if you like, is based on one thing, which is materialism. The material world is the only realm that exists. All other realms of existence are just primitive superstition or wishful thinking. So as soon as we can get people to think beyond the purely material realms, which we're all enmeshed in when we come into human form on this earth, we can't get away from the material realms but we can understand that there are other realms of reality and it's to these realms that we go when we leave our physical bodies and which we can access while we're still alive and in incarnation principally I mean um, the astral realm which is widely spoken about which is our first destination um, after we die and then a much more refined realm, which the, uh, uh, the ancients called Devachan, which means Sanskrit for land of the gods, the equivalent of the Christian heaven or the spiritualist uh, uh, paradise. It's a place where we do enjoy a prolonged period of time uh, in order to assess what we've learnt in this life and also to plan to some degree our next life, because I'm convinced that each of us comes in, into each new life with what we might call soul purpose. The problem is that people don't understand what this soul purpose is. And often they don't understand it till very late in life, or not at all. And this is because people see see things purely in this materialistic world, We're, we're just encouraged to go out, earn money, um, to buy things that we don't need, to impress people we don't like. And we just go on to this treadmill. We all need material things. I'm not saying we can right. right. live in Tibet or anything like that. But we, un- we must understand that there are other realms of reality. And I've just actually written a piece for a couple of magazines of trying to define what new paradigms of wealth would be. And in this, I say, can you put a price on walking along a sunset beach with someone you love. Um, well, I'm sure there's some accountant somewhere who probably could put a price <laughs> on that. Note. You can't, it's an intangible. And there are things which are much more valuable. Um, and particularly when you get to the end of your life, it's what you've done, it's what you've learned, it's the experiences that you've had. You're not worrying about your collection of books or vinyl LPs or anything like that. You're worried about, you're, you're thinking about all the rich experiences, all the interactions you've had in your life. And these should be valued much more. And we need to step away from this material paradigm, because if we don't, it's going to lead to our destruction.
2: Well said again. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, it reminds me of the saying, uh, uh, nobody in their deathbed said they should have spent more time at the office. Uh there's so much yeah, more indeed. there's so much more we could be doing that we want to do and we know we should be doing right
4: <laughs> well i think one of the things that we have to do um, is to identify you know why we chose to come here at this time because i am convinced that we have a great deal of say depending on our stage of development some people have a great uh, influence in the life that they will lead you know I I firmly believe, and many people will disagree, that we choose our parents, we choose our environment, Mm -hmm. choose the country, the race and the gender into which we're born. And this is based upon our sole purpose in that life, things that we have to resolve from previous lives, the working out of karma, if you like, and also the lessons we have to learn, the parts of ourselves that we have to work on, which are in some ways, deficient, because very few people are balanced in every department of their life. So we may come into a particular existence with one particular thing to try and rebalance. But of course, we all also come into uh, incarnation, I'm convinced in soul groups, you know, groups of individuals who have interacted in the past in different roles as your family, your friends, your associates, other people, perhaps with whom you've had great love or great conflict. And these things need to be resolved because some kind of karmic script exists, which needs to be rationalized. Let's not forget what karma is. People talk about good karma and bad karma. But really, there's no such thing. Karma is simply to restore equilibrium, to restore balance, and to create harmony, where there has been some kind of disruption to that harmony. And if people understood this, Every thought, every action, every word, every deed sends out vibrations, and these don't disappear. These will come back and shape your life in the future, which sounds to a lot of people like airy-fairy nonsense, but it isn't. And if you believe in this, as I do, then your behavior changes because you know if you do something wicked towards someone else, there will be a price to pay at some point. Maybe not in this life, Maybe not even in the next one, but somewhere down the line, uh, there will be an account to settle and so if we behave in this way, we behave, I think more responsibly towards ourselves and towards other people as well we you know we we obey that fundamental Christian commandment, you know don't do unto others as as you wouldn't like unto yourself, you know just treat other people as you would wish to be treated, and if we just adopted that one law. I think that would change things as well.
2: Again, uh, I love what you're saying. It makes perfect sense. Uh, I love how you write. Uh, Let me please quote you again, Tim. It goes, uh, Nowhere in the universe can death be found except in misguided human imaginations. There is no such thing as death, merely a change of state. If we refuse to see death as part of a greater cycle of life, we constrict life itself. This is perhaps the most important lesson the human race has yet to learn. And as has been told to me, uh, life is found in the womb of death. What do you think of that?
4: Absolutely, because the two states are intertwined. We tend to look on life and death as kind of opposites. Life is the opposite of death. But if we see things in terms of cycles, and I wrote another book uh, two or three years ago called Cycles of Eternity, in which I explored huge long cycles of of the cosmos and cycles that apply to us as human beings. And everything goes through a number of distinct stages. We're born, we gradually mature, we reach um, a high point, we begin to decline, the physical form dies, the soul or whatever you want to call it is preserved and is then enshrouded in another physical body to do it all again. And this is true for all life forms. You know, they go through this inevitable cycle. And this idea of people wanting to get themselves cryogenically frozen so that they can be retrieved <laughs> from the deep freeze at some point in the far distant future when they found a cure to whatever it was that killed them. This is ludicrous because you would simply be reviving soulless entities. Uh, they wouldn't have any animating principle, and they would just essentially be robots without any kind of. In a they might have a crude intelligence, but they would have no real consciousness because the consciousness comes from the soul. And this is the guiding principle. We're not bodies who happen to have souls attached to us. We're souls who happen for the next few decades to be inhabiting a human body. And we should see it that way around, that we are principally um, spiritual beings, souls. We're not principally, uh, incarnated just in flesh and bone and all the other infrastructure of the physical body we're much more than that we're also much more than our emotions and much more than our thoughts we are much much deeper people than the vast majority of humanity would admit
0: i
2: love it um and just uh we want to unpack some of these ideas uh, karma reincarnation and so forth but that might be the question uh, how do we get to understand our soul's purpose or remember past lives? For example, I've never had, I don't think I've had any past life memories. I do when I write about when I'm falling asleep. I have as a life Levy said, hypnagogic states where I think I'm somebody else that I've never seen in TV or met. And I have these visions of places that I've never been and it's very real. And then I fall asleep. I'm in the liminal places. What have you done in your life to help you remember past lives or to understand your soul's purpose?
4: Well, I have had flashbacks of uh, past lives and indications. I also about fifteen years ago when I started to um investigate death in a in a major way again and start lecturing about it and writing about it um I went through three um uh, regressions, hypnotic regressions, in which I recalled all sorts of different lives. The most recent life was of a man who had been killed in the Second World War. But I checked him out. And, and I checked out the street where he was supposed to have lived and uh, the factory where he's meant to have worked, and his name and everything, and it doesn't check out at all. However, ever since I was a very small child, Back in the 50s, we got our first television and they used to show a lot of war films on. There were lots and lots being made in the late 40s and 50s, mainly in black and white. TV was only black and white. But whenever I saw one of these war movies, and in particular, when I saw one about the desert, I became very, very interested. I used to say to my father, oh, I've been here before. And he said, oh, don't be so stupid (laughs) I was absolutely convinced about this. As I got older, I realized that my father had had two brothers who had also served in the army. They'd been regular soldiers. He was called up and conscripted in 1942 um, as an engineer. His two brothers had both served in North Africa, and one of them uh, was killed in April 1942, a man called Joe Wyatt. And as the years have gone on, I've become more and more convinced that, I'm not saying this definitely happened, but I've become more and more convinced that either I was associated with this individual in some way, or I was this individual. Now, there is no proof for this, and it's purely an intuitive feeling on my part. And this, of course, uh, Miguel raises another important question because people are very skeptical about reincarnation, "Okay." if it's true, why can't I remember my past lives? Or else they say to you, well, if reincarnation exists, where's the proof? And this is very, very difficult, because these people are asking you to furnish physical proof of a process which is essentially non-physical. I mean, the bits when we're in human bodies are physical, sure, but the bits in between are entirely non-physical. And so this is very Difficult to do. However, in the book, there are numerous ways that people um, do recall past lives, sometimes in dreams, sometimes during very traumatic incidents, sometimes when they fall in love with someone, uh, sometimes when they go to a place and this place is hauntingly familiar. They've never been there before, but somehow they know where individual buildings and streets and monuments are. Or sometimes people have terrible phobias. You know, they might be frightened of heights they might uh, be frightened of in closed spaces there is a very rich area of research which has been done into birthmarks and other markings on bodies and when researchers have looked into this and closely examined it and they've done a lot of work on this in India they found that um, perhaps a mark on the neck represents a bullet wound and there have been cases where a child has said in India oh, I used to be so-and-so, I lived in that village, I had an uncle with a green lorry, I had um, an aunt called this, and there's some money buried under the kitchen floor. And when they've gone back and checked this out, these children have been proved to be right. And in one case, when they checked out how the child had died, yes, indeed, they had been shot in the neck. These things in in themselves don't stand up to the deepest and most rigorous scrutiny, but when you add it all together, when you add all the indications should we say rather than evidence when you add all these different factors together people being born into a life with particular skills for example a great artist or someone who's good at music whatever you know i'm sure they didn't just acquire these things in you know in their infancy they perhaps brought these things from another life and this is something people should remember that we might not be able to take our material things with us and, and our overdrafts with us when we die, but we certainly take our knowledge and experience and skills with us, and they will come in useful in some shape or form in future lives. And this may be our sole purpose, to develop a particular skill which is going to be required at some point in the future.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.
2: Fascinating. And yes, your book brings a lot of evidence from many researchers who've done peer-reviewed studies and different religions. It's uh, really uh, interesting uh, research and data that you bring. Uh, you were talking about uh, uh, you couldn't remember this as a child. And I was thinking, Tim, well, you know, in the days of H.P. Blavatsky and Steiner and all those guys, reincarnation was pretty simple but now in our times we've had we've kind of broken through because now there's a possibility of parallel dimensions and the multiverse and moving left and right and so many new researchers do you ever wonder put that into account or wonder about that too
4: yeah very much so and blavatsky said that although i mean she, much of the secret doctrine her magnum opus uh, rails against the science of the day. She did say that science was theosophy and and the spiritual tradition's best ally. And I think we're reaching a point now, um, if we haven't reached it already, where we're going to see this convergence so that we get um, a spiritual science and the scientific spirituality. And I think this crossover is really starting to happen. Of course, it's not mainstream yet. But some of the things that are coming out of things like the Large Hadron Collider, some of the cosmological discoveries, the launch, I think, today or tomorrow of the James Webb Telescope. All these things are adding to this knowledge. The theoretical physicists who've been working for a 100 years on quantum mechanics and all the theoretical physicists who are talking about black holes and multiverses and all these things, these weren't known particularly in Blavatsky's time, but She was very prescient about these things. She seemed to anticipate that there would ultimately be some breakthrough. Of course, at the moment, science, mainstream science, is still very much of the materialistic, the purely materialistic mindset. But I think things could change very, very quickly indeed. And it may be that world events and the needs of this planet dictate that. And I'm not just talking about the material needs, but the deeper spiritual needs of this planet. And if science can reach a convergence and agree that there are other realms of existence besides the physical, then we're really starting to make huge, huge progress here.
2: That's a very good point, Tim. Again, uh... The idea of a simulated reality, parallel dimensions, uh, how the future can actually, uh, go back and change the past. These are, that's no longer, uh, as they say, woo woo, this is scientific, logical, mathematical. Many of, uh, the big scientists today and thought leaders agree with it. So you're right. This convergence will help us out and it's definitely proves what the ancient said i mean no secret buddhists and gnostics thought of parallel realities and how time is not cyclical but it's it's a lot more malleable than we think and so forth uh so uh yeah i would agree and i think we are on the right track Uh, vance uh, do you have a question or what do you think oh yeah this is one of my favorite subjects uh tim What do you think
3: of the um, idea that some people that are doing ghost hunting and spiritual things these days with the modern tech, do you think we'll ever have actual technology that where we can kind of transcend the material world and communicate with other souls? What do you think?
4: Well, I think one of the things that will be discovered soon, um, the early Theosophical teachers in the late 19th century and early 20th century and subsequent esoteric writers have written a lot about something called um, the etheric regions. The etheric is generally assumed to be part of the physical spectrum, but a much finer part of it. So uh, above, you know, you you have solids, liquids and gases and then maybe plasma. And plasma might correspond to the lowest of these four um, etheric states which are subetheric, etheric, subatomic and atomic. And I think many of these entities will exist perhaps on these etheric levels, but also on a higher level to that which we talked about earlier on, the astral level. Now whether that can ever be captured, I don't know. What we have to remember is that the human eye can see less than one percent. Of the entire electromagnetic spectrum so we're pretty blind and it's interesting when the scientific instruments are able to pick up these things in ghost rooms or indeed um, are able to produce images by superimposing infrared onto x-rays onto other things and when you put the composite picture together you start to see things in a much more complete way and so I, I'm convinced that, you know, these entities do exist and people, um, do encounter them. Exactly what form they're in, I don't know, but it's in the Theosophical tradition. They talk about, um, certain people who are so enmeshed in the material plane and who die with things unsettled. Um, and they become particularly attached to places often for very long. Periods of time, because in the inner dimensions, as you said earlier, Miguel, time doesn't exist. there isn't a past, present, and present, and future it's all mashed together into a continuous uh, present, and often in historic buildings or houses, you know these entities are perceived by sensitive people. I've watched a few of these these ghost programs. And I'm not entirely sure what to, uh, what to make of them. But I do accept that these <laughs> phenomena do exist. These phenomena do exist, definitely. If we can capture them in any more re- realistic way, I'm sure, given the, the rate at which technology is expanding, I'm sure we will eventually. Yeah, I
3: hope so. Yeah, you mentioned something else I was going to ask you about, too, which is um, the fact that, you know, uh, time is not necessarily as linear as we uh, materialistic uh, point of view people perceive it. So how does that interact with uh, past lives? I mean, could we have present lives? Could that explain ESP, you know, where you have actually a connection with another life that's actually someone that's already living in you know our timeline or future lives or maybe you know when when you die and um, uh, you, your soul wanders through the universe you can pick whatever time you want you could go in the future go into the past something like that what do you, what do you think about that
4: well what I think is that this concept of linear time which we universally adopt largely for convenience because you know, we have to when we're living in a material world, but it's a very constricting viewpoint. It may be that we can incarnate in other dimensions, on other worlds, in other universes, in other parallel states of reality, whatever they might be, whether we could. And if, if time, if linear time doesn't exist on the inner planes, then that might suggest that we could even incarnate into what we would regard as the past or the future. So I don't know. Um this is all very interesting stuff and our knowledge of it is extremely limited because one of the difficulties is that we, you know, we think we have fantastic faculties, but we don't. You know, birds can hear sounds better than we can. Uh, butterflies have a stronger sense yeah. of smell than we do. And animals know when a tsunami is about to hit the shores of an island or something. You know, they have sensitivities often much more developed than than we do. And so I think it's slightly arrogant of us to assume that we can see everything with our physical senses. But I think our intuition eventually tells a lot of people, and this is increasingly happening now, I think amongst children who are being born now, they have a greater sense of intuition. And I think they intuitively understand a lot of these universal laws much better than I did or my parents did uh, because I think an evolution is taking place very rapidly on this planet this may be because of necessity it may be natural I don't know but I perceive it and uh, I think it's all for the good
3: yeah I agree
2: yeah interesting yeah what did Philip K Dick call it Philip K Dick call it uh, remembering the future in your book as a, a section of individuals who either believed in uh, reincarnation or uh, had some uh, supernatural events. Uh, For example, uh, well, I'm thinking of the story of a few people know where uh, Alec uh, Guinness came to James Dean and had a premonition, says don't get on that ride, and James Dean didn't listen to him, and, well, he died in the crash. And uh, the one I didn't know about, Tim, is you say that Abraham Lincoln dreamed of his death or his assassination
4: fascinating and also the details of the dream were, were very very accurate because he saw himself lying on a catafalque in a particular room in the white house being guarded by sentries and he asked one of the sentries who is there and he's informed someone shot the president Um, But there have been many cases of this. Um, One of the examples I quote in the book is of the Titanic disaster in 1912 when that large vessel sank on her maiden voyage. It's amazing the number of people who a day or two before cancelled their trips across because they had all sorts of different feelings that something bad was going to happen. Um, A couple of decades before that someone had written a book Um, which almost mirrored in precise detail not only the location but the type of vessel. It was a novel, it was a piece of fiction, but it actually predicted all the key events of the sinking of the Titanic. And people had dreams. A number of people knew they weren't going to survive this trip and wrote their wills. Why they got on the boat if they had such strong convictions, one can only ponder, but... And they did, they perished, and they left their estates in order. So this idea of predicting the future um, becomes very real if we can access realms which don't obey the laws of linear time. If there is, I mean, there's something that Esoteric people talk a lot about called the Akashic records, which exist um, in the astral planes. this is a record of everything that's ever been thought done said in the history of humanity you know it's just like a giant library and some people it is said can access this or access parts of it um and therefore that explains an awful lot of things
2: oh agreed and um yeah as uh plato said all learning is remembering in some way or another uh, yeah, and I agree with you too. I think, uh, and Vance that all of us are really, humans are telepathic. It's, uh, it's scientific in a way. Our species, uh, survives before this ability was repressed. Like you said, animals can, uh, predict tsunamis or earthquakes. They can do things that seem to be magic that defy science. And, uh, but speaking of telepathy, do you feel, I know you touched a bit on this book that, maybe our fear of death might be something going back to atlantis or do you think that's when the trouble started
4: i certainly do think that um the times of atlantis spelled big trouble for humanity because it would appear from the information that we have and the information is quite scanty but it is said that the atlanteans reached a stage of spiritual atrophy and scientific advancement which very closely mirrors what we've got today, and that the society bifurcated into two principal strands, um, the good guys and the bad guys, the the lords of the light face, the lords of the dark face, the black magicians who tried to manipulate the forces of nature, tried to uh, encourage an ultra materialistic lifestyle who developed huge scientific advances, possibly even in advance of what we have at the moment. But this is where the rock set in. This is where um, humanity's spiritual evolution went off kilter. Maybe this was part of the plan. Maybe this had to happen. Maybe humanity had to experience these things. But it strikes me that, there, and I've written about this, is that there are very, very close parallels between what was happening then and, what's happening now i mean people people in the last uh, 40 or 50 years have seen more scientific advances than in the previous hundreds of years you know when you look at you know what technology was like at the end of the second world war you know we didn't even have transistors and then we had all this and um solid state electronics and then silicon chips and lasers and all sorts of other things came very very quickly indeed and so perhaps science uh, has advanced at a rate which it can't handle because one of the problems with science is that at best it's amoral it doesn't have a morality attached to it and in many cases it's deeply immoral because it allows discoveries to be misused to control or surveil people um, it allows technologies just for exploitation for commercialization or at in the worst case, to just weaponize everything into ever more horrendous forms of destruction. So science has got to look to itself to actually create some kind of morality. And maybe we have to say, when we discover some potent new technology, hang on a minute, what's the effect of this going to be? I mean, look at how the internet has changed every single aspect of life on this planet. Britain yesterday has just opened its first clinic for people who are addicted to online gaming. I gather other countries have done this before us, but this shows how the technologies intrude into people's lives very, very often. And the irony I always find with a lot of this stuff is that these tools, which were meant to unite us and to help us to communicate more effectively with each other, in fact, end up alienating us from one another. And creating um divisions electronic and digital divisions between people rather than creating a wider network of people that's just a personal view anyway
2: no i think you're onto to something and it's uh, evident by how we've become so fragmented today for sure and uh my next question is uh I mean, all systems have uh, the journey of death. Again, from the ancient Egyptians to the Gnostics uh, to uh, the Buddhists, this long journey after we die. I guess the the Christians at least kind of made it a one bus stop: you die, you're in heaven or hell. <laughs> but uh, how would you could you explain to the audience what exactly happens when we die according to H.P. Blavatsky?
4: Okay, the. I'll keep it brief because it can uh, can get very, very complicated. But um, according to the Theosophical and allied traditions and most modern esoteric traditions more or less agree with this, there are variations. When we die, um, our astral body, which is an exact counterpart of the physical body, um, you might look on it as the software in your computer. The The laptop is the physical body the software in it is the astral body it provides an imprint a blueprint for the physical world Um, our astral body leaves the physical body and goes to the astral plane back on earth the body still has a certain life attached to it which is called the etheric body people might call this the aura this tends to disintegrate between 24 and 48 hours after someone dies. When we arrive in the astral plane, it's often said to be divided into um, a number of different regions. Sometimes it's referred to by its Sanskrit name as Karma Loka. Karma is not like karma as in the law of cause and effect, it's actually pronounced Kama, K-A-M-A, and it means desire. And the astral world is essentially a world of Um, emotions and desires in terms of our physical journey or our spiritual journey rather it's here where we would spend a certain amount of time which could be anything from a few hours to hundreds of years and it's basically a place of reassignment and of um, consolidation and a certain amount of refining goes on and particularly wicked people will tend to spend longer in the astral planes than people who've Led better lives. It's a place of purification. It corresponds to some degree to the idea that Christians have of a purgatorial realm, a purgatory where people are shoved into fires. But I think that's rather a literal way. It's here where the best of our emotions and all the other things about our astral bodies are eventually refined and stored into something that theosophists call a permanent atom which will be like a seed with all the astral stuff in it, which will be revived along with other permanent atoms like physical atom when we're reborn again. Now, some people who don't have any kind of spiritual aspirations whatsoever will probably tend to reincarnate fairly quickly and after spending only time in the astral realms rather than the higher realms, because. There would be no reason for, for them to go to the higher realms because it would be alien to them. People without any kind of spiritual intimations at all within their lives wouldn't have any need to go there. So some people could be reincarnated very quickly after death. Um, it's said that uh, on average, the average person, and this is what Madame Blavatsky said, would spend the equivalent of a third of their earthly life so if the average age is say 75 people would spend the equivalent of 25 years in the astral realm. but of course time doesn't exist there so it's not necessarily a very meaningful thing people who have some degree of spirituality which probably most people will then go on to a higher realm this place called devachan the land of the gods heaven paradise and this is a much more refined place even than the astral planes and it's here where people can uh, spend time uh, resting between lives or can improve the skills they have uh, and do all sorts of other things as well but what we have to remember is that these places are not physical places they're not they don't have form they are subjective realms and they are based upon our own beliefs about this they are subjective therefore A fundamentalist Christian who believes in hellfire and damnation and the devil will probably see that to some extent when they get onto the astral plane. Some guy with a a trident and a tail trying to shove them into a furnace. (laughs) Uh, Because it's about a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people believe in Jesus and angels, then that's probably what they'll see. Hindus and Buddhists and people from other faiths and traditions will have a different experience. But often people do have these kinds of experiences, not just when they die, but when they have near death experiences, or sometimes um, in other ways through the use of certain substances, meditation, uh, dancing, all sorts of different ways of, of changing consciousness can give us some indications and a glimpse of what certainly the astral state is like. So when we spent a certain amount of time in, the heaven world in David Chan in the second world after we die. Ultimately, we reach a point where we have to come back into physical bodies once again. Uh, there will be occasional individuals who are very advanced who go off and do other things in other worlds, but for the vast majority of people, they're obliged to incarnate again, and so the process then begins—a very mysterious process about which we don't know a great deal of. Perhaps working alongside more knowledgeable individuals, but also uh, with our own thoughts, deciding how, where and when we're going to lead the next life. What our mission is, who our parents will be, uh, how we're going to interact with those people who form parts of our soul groups. And then, you know, the, the very mysterious process of how you wind up in your mother's womb and how the soul enters the body and how that child is then born. But the entirety of the soul is not there, it gradually moves into the body as, as the child grows during its uh, first years. So in a nutshell, that's the theosophical view of, of what happens. And it's, it's something I was happy to adopt, because it struck me as being absolutely logical, because it always struck me, even when I was a child, There would be no point in coming into this life, assuming that life has purpose, which I do, and which I'm sure most of your listeners will, but assuming life has purpose, what would be the purpose of coming into existence and dying after a few hours or weeks or months? Uh, There would be no point in that, Um, and unless there was a principle of karma, in which case your life might be to teach the parents a lesson, for example, because of some karmic bond you had between them but it's always struck me as being the most persuasive thing but it's very hard to convince my materialistic friends that this is the case they simply won't entertain it because there's no scientific proof so there we are
2: thank you for that summary it was wonderful yeah i must say i like uh cama loca in spanish means crazy bed so i had to chuckle about that writing that crazy bit and one thing i like too which explains a lot tim uh, people again like our mutual friend uh, vance and i scott smith will say well how come there's seven billion people now but um there was a time when there was only one million people and this and that and you tried to add up the math but as you point out very astutely the the time in between our reincarnations varies, and of course time in the astral plane works as, as, as at its own uh pace, like you say Herodotus thought that uh it was what um three thousand years, or he said the Egyptians believed that. 3,000 years before you came back. And Plato said that uh, you might come back in a 1,000 years. So Steiner said that it depends on the earth changes that your soul will be called back. So, yeah, very interesting, don't you think?
4: Yes, I, I mean, these different uh, durations in between lives vary from some Buddhists believe it's 49 days. And as you say, uh, the Egyptians talked about 3,000 years. Madame Blavatsky talked about 1500 years for advanced individuals, and perhaps half that for less evolved individuals. Steiner, as you say, related it to the changing nature of the earth, and he pointed out that there would be no point incarnating twice during the same kind of historical period because there would be nothing fresh to learn there necessarily. And he believed that um, I think people reincarnated twice during each part of the processionary cycle. this long cycle of 25,920 years divided into 12 um, of 2,160 years. Uh, We're moving from the cycle of uh, Pisces into Aquarius, as we all know, and that might be one of the reasons why the world is in such turmoil. But Steiner said people would incarnate once as a man and once as a woman, um, each time during that 2,160 year period. But... There are many other factors. It's generally agreed that after there has been a major war, and this was certainly the case after the First and Second World Wars, there's a real spike in the birth rate after the war. Um, And indeed, you know, one of the things that I find very mysterious is that when I was born in 1952, the population of the Earth was just under two and a half billion, and it's now 7.7 billion. So it's trebled in a period of just under 70 years. And as far as I'm aware, that is completely unprecedented and must suggest that people perhaps are reincarnating more quickly because um, this will all depend upon the particular cycle that we're in. And if you think the second half of the 20th century was a fantastic time to be alive, very difficult, but <laughs> fantastic time to be alive in terms of so many things, medical advancements, scientific advancements. Uh, better living conditions for people and all sorts of other things and so maybe more people felt they had to put a foot down during this particular era than at previous times because imagine if you'd been born in some small village in rural England in the 12th century what would you have learnt in your life other than the skills you picked up from your father And accrued a lot of knowledge of language from your immediate village community. There was no travel, there were no books, and it would have been very difficult to absorb anything. Whereas now we have the opportunity to avail ourselves of so many things, perhaps too many things. So there may be all sorts of factors influencing the time we spend out of uh, existence, and it may be to do with our own particular development. It may be. That at a particular time the skills that we have become particularly vital in order to solve some problem associated with a particular period of history
2: yeah indeed and then once you bring in uh, like you bring in your book uh, uh blavatsky believe we have several bodies obviously the egyptians thought the soul was divided into seven or nine i believe the gnostics had the tri- tripartition of the human consciousness so it gets uh, it's, uh, it's a busy universe out there, as I like to say. But what about the idea of suffering, Tim? Because some might say in doing these reincarnation arguments, some might say, well, what about suffering? What about children who only live three months? What about Nazi concentration camps? Is this worth it? Do we ask for it? What's your answer to that?
4: Well, I deal with this to some extent uh, in the book. And uh, just after the war, um a man called Air Chief Marshal uh, Dowding, who had been head of the r a f during the war, gave a talk at the Theosophical Society in London and he basically said, and I'm sure, if you said it now, people would be absolutely outraged. but what he said was that many of the people associated with the concentration camps um, had been the people who had tortured the natives in North America when uh, Cortez and the conquistadors had gone and committed all those um, unspeakable brutalities. I mean, what he meant, what he meant was: what goes around comes around. If we inflict suffering in a in a war or in some other situation, the people who ran the concentration camps or the Russian gulags or any similar faculty through history, people who were involved in the Inquisition, may all come back and have to suffer either symbolically or literally. The same things that they inflicted on other people. Eckhart Tolle, uh, the uh, well known American writer, has a great quote on it. He says, Suffering is most people's only spiritual teacher. And it's only through suffering that that we actually learn lessons. And if we're suffering, the most important thing um, to remember is oh, not poor me, isn't it terrible? Aren't I the victim? But what caused. The suffering what imbalance did i me personally what did i do to create this because nothing is thrust upon us accidentally you know we don't live in a, a random accidental purposeless universe things happen for a reason and if we have to suffer in some way and it can be numerous different ways it can be financially it can be in terms of emotions it can be in terms of health it can be in terms of um uh, an automobile accident or a victim of war or plague or famine or anything like this. But none of it happens, accident. It's all part of a giant plan and an interlocking network of energies and forces and causes which have produced this. It, It hasn't happened by accident, which is why, and again, I hesitate to say this, but you have to question the nature of victimhood. And as a journalist, one of the things I've become very aware of over the years is the media loving to create victims. You know, and I don't like this. I think victimhood is one of the most unpleasant things people can can inflict upon themselves, you know, because they, you know, there are people who have a terrible, terrible life. And it's all very well to say, okay, you did this because you murdered someone back in the 17th century or whatever. But if people go within themselves, if they do go into those innermost parts of of themselves, sometimes they can get faint hints and clues as to what may have gone on here and and as to why they're suffering in a particular life. But it also reinforces the idea that we can be proactive about this. If we don't want to suffer in the future, then let's not set up those causes which are going to produce suffering, either through greed, selfishness violence or all the other negative things that we do we can choose to tread a more and I, again i hesitate to use this word moral path because you know, deeply embedded in every esoteric tradition is this idea of self-conduct or morality of conducting ourselves in the correct way towards other people and many other traditions have talked about this the japanese um, Many of the Confucian-type uh, things have talked about this. Uh, Christianity does. All the major religions enshrine approximately the same idea. It's just that most of us find it extremely <laughs> difficult to live this, but it's, it's something we can aspire to at least. Well said. If we realise the mechanics of what's going on, then you know we know that if we put our hands in a fire, we're going to get burnt. So it's just a question of applying that principle a bit more widely.
2: Well said. And do you have a website or where can people
4: find out more about you? It's at firewheelbooks.co.uk and the books which I have for sale are available from that.
2: Awesome. Well, check it out. I enjoyed the book a lot and uh, we will have it, of course, this link in the show notes. Well, we are at the end. It's been a great conversation, intriguing, engaging, excellent. Uh, First of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this journey.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. And hopefully I'm up another rung on that ladder in the cosmic uh, communion uh, uh, situation.
2: There you go. That's all we can do, step by step. Well, Tim, we really appreciate you coming on Aeon By to discuss everyone's book of the dead. And uh, good luck with uh, all your future work.
4: Well, thank you very much, Miguel. And it's been nice to talk to you in Vance uh, on this show. Thank you very much for asking me. Pleasure is all ours. Thank you. Yeah.
2: And there you have it, you spiritual entrepreneurs. The first part of our interview with Tim Wyatt. In our second part, Tim discusses how suicide plays into his ideas of karma and reincarnation. Speaking of, he'll talk about the mechanics and perspectives of karma in detail, as well as the divisions of the human soul. Tim will address whether there is one consciousness, and are we just fractals or manifestations of it, and much more. So please become an AB Prime member, Red Circle subscriber, or Patron at Patreon for the full past life recall. Only $6.99 for AB Prime, or 4 dollars on Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Membership to AB Prime or Patreon mid-levels includes full access to more than 500 quality shows. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and my Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US Mail really, really helps. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wishlist. Finding Hermes is going strong and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a monthly intimate Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. I've recently done presentations on the Sethians, the Jungian inner journey, the secrets of the serpent Gnostics, Gnostic sex magic, and why we live in Gnostic times, and covered a lot of Gnostic sex and their rituals. I know that's a lot, but I gotta stay spread out as I dodge Archons and their projections. I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey, if crypto's your bag. If you need help with all these choices, uh, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the Rio.